I am speaking to you at a moment of grave crisis. I'm Jeff Turner, and this is Recall. It's a series about history. Not the ancient past, but history that's still hot to the touch. In this first season, I explore a revolutionary political movement that brought a modern democracy to the brink. You can find Recall, How to Start a Revolution, on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hello, I'm Neil Kirksall. And I'm Chris Howden. This is As It Happens, the podcast edition. Tonight. Applying pressure, the federal government's new temporary program to help get up to 1,000 people out of Gaza officially launched today. An immigration lawyer working to help his family and others tells us about the logistics of filing those applications and requirements he says he's never seen before. A searing indictment. Scientists officially confirm what we all already suspected, that 2023 was the hottest year on record. Our guest tells us how she is trying to keep a cool head. What's yours is mined in a world first. Norway allows deep sea mining exploration in its territorial waters. An environmental campaigner says that is not good for his country or its reputation. Class Act will speak with the 17-year-old New Jersey activist who's pushing for a lower voting age for school board elections, a campaign that now has the state governor's support. Turning up her nose, a woman who just broke the Guinness World Record for loudest nose whistle, yeah, trumpets her success, and if all goes well, a nose-whistling rendition of this very theme song, too. Please, oh please. (laughs) And uh, excuse me, I have to take this and this. An Arizona art thief nearly pulls off a lucrative heist, but is caught because he decides to have a long phone conversation before making a quick getaway. As it happens, the Tuesday edition, radio that figures somebody made a bad call. For Louis Algoul, today started early. He'd been preparing since December when the Canadian government announced a special program that would open the door for citizens' extended family members in Gaza to come to Canada. The program will only be giving out 1,000 visas, and around midday today it was up and running. Mr. Algoul is an immigration lawyer who's been preparing applications for other people and for members of his own family. We reached him in Winnipeg. Louis, as that that time approached when the portal was going to officially launch, what was your morning like up until that point? My my director of immigration uh, department, she was here since 4 a.m. in the morning. We had no idea when it's going to be opening, so we're calling, uh, um, you know, uh, making sure it's it's you know when is it going to be open. Nobody's knowing any, anything. We're checking the, the the portal, checking the website. Just refreshing it's, constantly. Yeah, and uh, it wasn't until around eleven it, it was open. And after it opened, then what has your day been like since then? Oh well, then it was uh, getting information for the first time, knowing what this program is all about and uh, how to deal with it. Um, it, it would have been much better if it had been at least published before. For example, one of the forms that you need to do is a statutory declaration for the anchor. The person who's going to sponsor them when you say anchor. That is correct, yeah. And the definition of relative in Gaza is uh, it used to be initially spouse or children, and it was expanded to include also parents, grandparents, uh, mm-hmm. and uh, siblings. 
um, and their children. And the such a declaration had to be witnessed by uh, a lawyer or a commissioner for oath or notary public. So now this is it's a big <laughs> it's a big challenge for everybody. And imagine doing this for I don't know a family of twenty or twenty five people. Yeah. It's it's. Uh, and and you're you're saying this as someone who's experienced in this. You're you're a lawyer and you know how these things work. Uh, and yeah, and yeah. you're you're seeing the the issues. Yeah. So the race is still going on, <laughs> and 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 the one thousand applications is as as really really small and limited as they are. Um, it's still difficult to 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 see if you're going to be fitting in in one of those yeah. uh, thousand. That's yeah. the th- that that thousand is the number that they've capped it at. What do you make of that number? I think it's really impractical. I think it's a number that is um, it it makes no sense, uh, provided the number of people in crisis over there, the <laughs> the hundreds of thousands of houses uh, that I mean homes that has been demolished. Uh, it's a it's a real big crisis, and I think. This thousand applications—it doesn't make any sense to me when I compare it to other programs like the Ukrainian program and other programs that has been out there. Honestly, we're finding this as we speak. So, in the last two hours, we've received more documents as to what needs to be—you know—assuming that you get the code, as to what needs to be filled and information that needs to be uh, disclosed. I'm happy to share some of this with you. I think you'll. Yeah, uh, I was going to ask. Just give us some examples of what they're being asked to to provide. Some of these things that they've, they've been asked to do. Um, one of the forms that they have to fill, they have to fill the people from Gaza, something called additional background information form. This form needs to be filled by any person between the ages of 14 years old and 79 years old. Is that so not sort of standard practice? Absolutely not. Absolutely mm-hmm. not. But let's, that's not the issue. Here's the issue. In, within this form, you have to provide, in, in number six, you have to provide all your social media accounts, including Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, TikTok, WhatsApp, and all other messaging applications. Imagine you're being 14 years old. Okay? How many is <laughs> how many Instagrams and Facebook and and what's the, why are you doing this? And uh, a 14 year old in the middle of a war. What yeah, do you and, think and they're trying to ascertain here? And this is from the uh, Immigration, Refugee, and Citizenship kind of form. I've never seen this form in any immigration program. I might be wrong, but I, I I haven't seen this kind of requirements from any immigration program. I think this is not for the government of Canada, clearly. And I'm not sure how you're going to... What do you screen. mean? Who is it for, then? Well, I, I think it's for the government who is go- going to let these people exit Gaza Strip into their territory. I think there. this is a... I, I'm just... Honestly, I'm just guessing here, but I think this is a form of trying to see if these people are have posted anything against someone, if you know what I mean. And, You're saying Israel? And, well, I think so. And and I, I'm not sure really what, what's the purpose behind this form, but it's this will take years, not just weeks, right? So I'm not sure really what's this form for. Another uh, point, which is point eight, for example, it says, provide a description of any scars or injuries which have required medical attention and how you sustain these scars or injuries. Absolutely ridiculous. But anyways... Another thing, uh, number seven, provide a full detailed employment history since the age of 16, including exact dates, description, and details of your, no, of your roles and responsibility, and provide names of supervisors, reasons for leaving the job, and any disciplinary, disciplinary issues you had. 
from. And as you navigate these these forms, as you say, they're just coming to you. This is all new. Uh, is your phone? I mean, I can only imagine ringing constantly. What are you hearing from people, including your own family, who are waiting for answers? Uh, I haven't shared this with my family yet. This mm-hmm. is honestly, you guys are the only for the first people I'm speaking with right now. I, I think this is going to be fun to speak to my family about this. Speak to my uh, aunt who is. I think she's 79 years old and try to ask her to remember what she did when she was uh, 16 years old. So now you mentioned you have the codes, you're waiting, but how long do you think before people will will be able to to actually come to Canada, given what you've just outlined? Uh, I had initially estimated the, the visa might be issued within two months, two to three months because of the crisis, and it would it would serve no purpose if it's been delayed more than two or three months because people probably would be killed by then. But giving this kind of um, the details that are pro- are being asked here, I'm not sure really, I can't really ask, answer the question. I'm not, I have no idea. Canadian officials, they're listening. You have the opportunity to talk to them. You know, I think we need to, if we are actually making an exception to our rules and policies to try and save people from the war who are being killed and, and, and provide them with a shelter, a refuge for temporary refuge. Asking these kind of questions, you're penalizing these people. I think our government needs to play a stronger role in, in making this an easy process by speaking with different governments and taking a serious uh, step by saying, you know, we're saving people from, from being, innocent people from being killed and we need to be reasonable, treat them the same way we treat anybody else who comes to Canada. We will certainly follow up with government officials here. Louie, thank you for your time. Thank you very much. Thank you. Take care. Louie Al-Ghul is an immigration lawyer in Winnipeg. That's where we reached him this afternoon. We've reached out to the Office of the Minister of Immigration, Refugees and Citizenship, and we'll hope to bring you an interview tomorrow. Norway prides itself on being an international leader. And when it comes to global rankings, it's right up there on various lists, education, life expectancy, press freedom, tops by pretty much every metric except daylight hours in the winter months. But environmental campaigners in the country say for once they hate to see their country come first. In a controversial vote today, Norway's parliament voted to make it the first country in the world to allow deep sea mining exploration on a commercial scale. Fruta Pleim is the head of Greenpeace Norway. We reached him in Oslo. Fruta, this result was was expected, um, widely anticipated. How does it sit with you, having heard it now? Super disappointing. Uh, this is um, a deeply irresponsible and shameful decision uh, by the Norwegian parliament today. It is at this point, though, about authorizing exploration, not extraction. And there's there's assurances from the government that it will only begin issuing licenses after further environmental studies are carried out. Does that give you any confidence or comfort? Not at all, because that's uh, exactly the same thing they are saying with regards to 
new new exploration uh, for 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 oil it always lead to to extraction however um like they will have a chance to to prove that they are taking the environmental concern into account by by the votes that will, will follow in the future in the parliament on on any specific mm-hmm. mining license i hear a sliver of optimism there then from you it's a sliver but but it's it's still like deeply disappointing that that norway as as the first uh, nation in the world is is moving towards commercial mining of of, of the deep seas. Uh, like like Norway, if any country, uh, like being dependent on on the ocean and, and, and living healthy ocean, should not play Russian roulette with with uh, our oceans. What do you say though to the argument that these minerals are, are critical um, for the world we live in, the time we live in, as we talk about a transition towards green energy, the production of lithium-ion batteries for for EVs, for example. These minerals are indeed uh, like critical. Uh, however, what uh, Norway or other countries not have done uh, to date is to establish a circular economy where we actually reuse the minerals we already have found. So before we do that, like why should we uh, add uh, an additional destructive uh, industrial practice, i.e. deep sea mining, to the mix. Wouldn't this help, though, you know, when we talk about the existing cobalt mining that's happening in the DRC, for example, widespread human rights abuses reported by Amnesty International there. So if, if ending that or getting away from that would be the end result of a proposal like this one, is that not the best route at this time? The, the, the problem is that they are uh, continuously expanding, uh, opening up new mines or opening up, up, up new areas instead of actually looking at what kind of minerals already we have. So what we are calling on the world's governments to do, including Norway, uh, is to first uh, be serious about circular economy, like be serious about using the minerals that we have found before we, we take risks. Uh, opening new land, uh, new new, new landmines ashore and deep sea mining offshore. Getting to to that point of a circular economy, recycling what we have. What is the timeline for something like that? That is uh, something that will uh, like potentially take take years. But put into perspective, um, the the world's countries uh, like uh, like we're not made aware. Uh, uh, yesterday that we have an issue with, with global warming. It's decades ago. Mm-hmm. And the same thing goes for 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 the need for having a, a circular system, a circular uh, like economy. The need for that has been uh, put forward by scientists for, for, for decades. The reason for it not happening is that it's cheaper and faster for politicians and companies to continue on the same path we have been for years. And our point is that like we got to stop. Like Enough is enough. We cannot keep on doing the same thing anymore, which has led to the issues that we are facing at the moment. Industry leaders, um, companies, Canadian corporations, for example, the metals company, uh, argue that that this approach that they've now authorized looking at in Norway is is less environmentally damaging than land-based mining. So what is your message to, to leaders who are saying that? Well, uh, like I'm, I'm sorry, but like the way we see it, this is this is uh, this is bollocks. Um, this is the same kind of line of argument uh, like they're using with regards to um, uh, like oil drilling in Canada or or, or Norway um, are are better than oil drilling in some other countries. Uh, the, the 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 problem here remains that 
any new oil drilling and any new exploration for rare minerals out at sea are destructive. Um, and like we we cannot heed the 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 assurances from from the industry itself. We need to heed the advice from the scientists and both the Canadian scientists, the Norwegian scientists, and and the UN have been very clear that we need a moratorium on deep sea mining. And this is what Norway, in effect, is challenging by the decision today. The the UN-backed Council of the International Seabed Authority, or the ISA, says it is working to develop a framework as well that would regulate deep sea mining in international waters. We want to play a clip of what the ISA Secretary General was saying back in November. When it comes to the discussion of uh, environmental impacts, there is a great deal of common ground. Everybody uh, agrees uh, that we need to have the most rigorous environmental standards because it is a global activity, uh, but there should be standards that every country in the world is has to abide by and has to apply. Uh, and they have to be driven by data and they have to be driven by science and a very precautionary approach. That's the UN's Michael Lodge. Now, keeping in mind that that the ISA has jurisdiction only over international waters, we know Norway can do what it wants in in its own territory. Does does hearing statements like that add to that sliver of optimism? Yes, it does indeed. I and mean, we just uh, like hope that uh, like Norway would like listen to uh, these kind of voices um, because it's it's not too late. Yet uh, the decision of the parliament today is is like opening up for exploration, not the extraction. So Norway still has the opportunity to come to their senses and and acknowledge that we know too little to start uh, mining in the deep sea yet. Fruda, I appreciate your time. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Fruda Pleim is the head of Greenpeace Norway. We reached him in Oslo. We've covered a lot of different Guinness World Records on this show, most of which are pretty obscure to the point where it's sort of hard to believe someone set those records. The tallest poison ivy plant, for example, or the longest female mullet. No offense. It's a great record. Or the loudest purr by a domestic living cat, to name just a few. But then there are the Guinness records that are less obscure. They're more conventional, the ones that we've all thought about and wished we could set ourselves if we only had the talent or the dedication or the courage. Well, Lulu Lotus has all of the above, which is why she has just been awarded one of the most conventional and most highly coveted world records for loudest nose whistle. We reached Ms. Lotus in Aurora, Ontario. Lulu, congratulations, first of all. Thank you so much. <laughs> when did you first, I mean, at what point in your life do you realize you have this very special skill? Um, I was around seven years old when I discovered it. And how? How does that pop up? I was just um, playing around with my body, trying to figure out what kind of things I could do. And I was playing around with, I guess, the muscles in my throat. And I happened to make a whistle sound. And then I just kept practicing that until I could get different melodies. You wanted to to have that one thing. Yes. Well, <laughs> <laughs> you found it. You found it. And so how does one, you know, hone that craft, train your instrument? 
to get to the level you're at today? I guess you just keep practicing. That's all I did. <laughs> so the 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 decibel level here is crucial. The loudness of of your nose whistle is what got you this record. So how loud are we talking? It was about forty four point one decibels, and that is as loud as, uh, from what I've been reading, as some bird calls. Yeah, yeah. which is exciting because <laughs> I love birds. <laughs> I've seen the videos and you seem very calm in them. It doesn't seem like you're exerting a lot of pressure to get to that decibel level. Are you? What I want to know, you know, inside the craft. You know what? Sometimes if I clench my teeth a little bit, I feel like I have more control over the sound of the whistle, if that makes any sense. It does. I don't think I could execute it, but uh, it does make sense, sort of. And okay, let's not make people wait uh, any longer. I've had a sneak preview from from some of your recordings, but you don't just make a single note that's loud. You are able to nose whistle some pretty famous songs. Why don't you you play a favorite for us? Sure. I'll do the Godfather theme song first, if that's okay. Absolutely. Okay. I mean, bravo. Did you hear it? Yeah, oh, I heard it. It was great. <laughs> oh, that's good. I have to awesome. say. What's the, you know, but how do they judge you? How do they make sure that, that you don't have some uh, little tiny tape recorder behind you? <laughs> <laughs> um, so I had to go to an audio engineering studio and they had me go into like a special room and they um, measured the, the sound using a device. Um, so I had three attempts and I did it three times and then they were able to calculate, uh, I guess, the average and you you have a repertoire. There are other songs you do, but but there's only one song that's really important to us, and that's our that's our theme song. We did send it to you before. You haven't had a lot of time to practice, but uh, if you wouldn't mind, we'd love to hear some. I'll, I'll give it a try. <clears throat> I, honestly, it's, it was a hard one to memorize. It's, if I had more time, I could get it. That was pretty good. That was pretty good for just, you know, an hour or so that, that you that you had to pull that together. How often are you doing this a day? Um, honestly, it's just it's so much fun for me to do. I do it randomly throughout the day. And when my sons were younger, like when they were babies, instead of singing them lullabies, <laughs> I would nose whistle lullabies to them. <laughs> so how old are they now? They're five and six, and my five-year-old, he can nose whistle too, so I'm wondering if it's genetic or something. Is the six-year-old jealous, though? He Honestly, yes. He oh. wishes he can do it, and I keep trying to teach him. I think one day maybe he'll get it, but I don't know. Oh, maybe he'll find out he has a, a special, unique skill uh, all his own. Do they enjoy it, though, That's or are they just like, Mom, can you just read me a book, sing me a regular lullaby? Like, we it. do that too, but honestly, <laughs> I think they think it's pretty cool, especially yeah. that I got into the you know the Guinness Book of World Records. Like yeah. they're they're excited about that. And is there a community of nose whistlers around the world that I, you've become I acquainted wish. with? I haven't been able I haven't been able to find um, many other people. I saw a YouTube video of somebody, um, but they weren't very active on social media, so I couldn't get a hold of them. But I'd love to find others. Maybe we could like nose whistle together. You know. <laughs> A choir? Is that what a group yeah. of nose whistlers is called? Start a little band. <laughs> yeah, something like that. So you've broken the Guinness World Record. What's next? 
Um, I really don't know what's next. My dream would be like to be in songs. Like, you know how they have people making music in the background with instruments? Like if I could nose whistle a little tune in someone's song, that would be really cool to me. Like if Drake is listening, which I'm sure he is right now, uh, calls you for the next track. That's that's, that would be so cool. Okay. Well, Lulu, we'll talk to you when that happens. Uh, Congratulations. (laughs) Thank you so much. Lulu Lotus is the Guinness World Record holder for loudest nose whistle. We reached her in Aurora, Ontario. It's official, in case the unprecedented wildfires, drought, and flooding weren't obvious proof already, 2023 was the hottest year on record. Scientists at the EU-backed Copernicus Climate Change Services report that the planet was 1.48 degrees Celsius hotter than pre-industrial era temperatures last year, uncomfortably close to the 1.5 degree target set by countries at the Paris Climate Summit. The researchers also warned that that 1.5 degree mark will probably be passed for the first time this year. Daniela Schmidt is a climate scientist at the University of Bristol. She was not part of the Copernicus study. We reached her in Bristol, England. Professor Schmidt, you're obviously closer to this information and know it before the rest of the world does. So does anything still surprise you? This year was definitely warmer than we had expected and dramatically warmer. And it's not just, you know, that it's the average, it's the duration. It got warmer than it has ever been before at that time in May and it sustained month on month on month. Back in September, when that month's record was smashed, we talked about a a scientist calling it, quote, gobsmackingly bananas. Are those the kinds of phrases that populate your mind as you keep seeing these trends? Maybe not exactly those words, but something between exceptional, vast, frightening, unprecedented. All of these are words I, I would use without hesitation. The Copernicus scientists you know, say it's not only increased, it's increased by a large margin. Uh, in 2023, there was a 0.17 degrees Celsius. It's 2023, I should say, was 0.17 degrees Celsius higher than the previous record year, which was 2016, as you well know. But just for our listeners, you know, in terms of climate science, why is that number such a concern? It, it doesn't sound that much, but you need to see that this is above the previous year when usually increases in temperature are really quite small increments. And it's also the global average. So the warming will have been more in higher latitudes, like in Canada or the UK, where I am based. You know, if you look at the the heat map distribution, Canada and especially northern Canada really stands out. How does El Nino play into this? How much of a factor was it? I don't think that this year would have been that much warmer without it being an El Nino. You mentioned uh, a previously very warm year with 2016, Mm -hmm. which was also an El Nino year. But it is also very clear that we've had El Ninos for millennia, for thousands and thousands of years. Without our emissions, without our interference with the climate system, this would have not been that warm. The scientists, the Copernicus scientists who put this report together, are also expecting and warning that we will surpass one and a half degrees Celsius within the next 12 months. So this year, 
What do you expect that we should expect to see as a result of that? I think it's it's really difficult. We need to think about the fact that when you know the Paris Agreement said we will try to keep the temperature above, um, be, sorry, below one and a half degrees warming global average, it is really important to remember that this was about sustained warming to that degree. And so we need to be careful what our expectations are. Some things, for example, take a while. If you experience a marine heat wave and, and um, you know, the Canadian Pacific has that more frequently than we like, then you don't see a change immediately like you would see on land when grasses dry and, and trees get dry. But just to think about it, last year in 2022, when we had those numbers, in Europe alone, we had thousands of extra deaths of people who just can't deal with that heat. We will see changes to the rainfall because, you know, if it gets warmer, we will have more moisture in the air. We will get more heavy rainfall. We will get floods. There will be so many changes that it's really important to remember climate change is not just happening tomorrow. Climate change is here now and its impacts are here now. People around the world are certainly feeling that. and But still, here we are at this worrying stage yet again. So what do you want... Our listeners here in Canada, but around the world and in the U.S. as well, what do you want them to take away from this information? What should they do with it? What can they realistically do with it? It is really important that we remember that we have good means now, not tomorrow, now to change our emissions. The price for electric vehicles has dropped dramatically over the last 10, 20 years. We have so much more capacity for onshore and offshore wind. And so we have means to change our transport, to green our cities, and to make it simply a better world. Because if we're changing our transport and taking the CO2 emissions out, we're improving air quality. There are people dying everywhere around the world because of bad air quality. If we're greening our cities, we give space to nature, but it's also just more pleasant while also reducing heat islands. I spoke to a a climate activist in Norway earlier in the program, uh, and I'll ask you the same question that I asked them, and that is, if you have any optimism, is there room for optimism when you continually see the kinds of numbers we're seeing and we'll see again? There is. If you think about all the things we can change to make us healthier, our cities better, our transfer better. It's a more desirable world. So if we just put it in place, there's two birds with one stone. If is the question, if is the word there. Uh, are you optimistic that it but will be put in place, right? I think we all need to increase the pressure on our governments to implement the changes. We need to make wise choices when we buy and whom we buy for. And we need to consider what we can do ourselves as well. But it's really important to remember that the governments have this opportunity to think about new investment into making the world more livable. Professor, thank you for your time. You're very welcome. Daniela Schmidt is a climate scientist at the University of Bristol. She's in Bristol, England.
Hey, I'm Johanna Wagstaff. And hi there, I'm Rohith Joseph. And we're asking for 10 minutes of your day to go through the 10 things that the UN recommends we can all do when it comes to climate change. Please don't leave. No. And also the things (laughs) aren't new. We are just wired to not do them. We promise you to help you figure out your brains and you and your people can make better choices to combat climate change. 10 Minutes to Save the Planet is available now on CBC Listen and everywhere you get your podcasts. School board elections are a major partisan battleground in the U.S. these days. But while angry grown-ups snipe at each other, the students have no say at all. Now, a movement to allow kids 16 and up to vote for school board officials is gaining traction in New Jersey. And today, during his State of the State address, Governor Phil Murphy took a moment to endorse the idea. Now, I know to some this proposal may sound unconventional, but voting is a lifelong habit. And studies show that if a person votes in one election, they are far more likely to turn out in the next election. So encouraging our young neighbors to engage with democracy is really about encouraging them to become lifelong voters. New Jersey Governor Phil Murphy speaking today. And tomorrow, New York City Council will hold its final vote on lowering the voting age for school board elections. Yan Jae Hu is the founder and executive director of the advocacy group Vote 16 New Jersey. We reached him in Trenton, New Jersey. Yan Jae, the governor's backing on this. Is that a game changer for you and the team you work with? It's honestly amazing to have the governor's support. Uh, thinking back to when I just started and founded this movement three years ago to where we are now, it's incredible how far we've come. I mean, we already have Newark, New Jersey lowering the voting age tomorrow, actually. They're expected to vote to lower the voting age for their school elections. And so it's definitely great to have the governor's support, and we hope to work with the state legislature on this. But, I mean, we're already making headway into 16-year-old voting here. You've been busy for the last few years. You're 17 now as you push mm-hmm. for this. So you've wanted this for a long time, but I wonder, you know, when you were 14, 15, was there something that happened? Did you read or see something that made you want to do this? Yeah, honestly, one of the biggest things was just seeing how disconnected Americans were from the government. Like, if we look at American voter uh, turnout numbers and just civic engagement in general, it's honestly too low compared to other developed Mm -hmm. countries. And I wanted to look for ways to get involved and help fix this issue. And once I discovered this um, initiative, initially I was a little bit surprised, as many people are. Initially, as like a 14, 15-year-old, as a freshman, sophomore in high school, I never really considered it to be a possibility that I could vote. But then once I really thought about it and thought, hey, school board issues are the ones that directly affect me the most. Like, I know things about school, everyday, like everyday life, that perhaps school board members don't know too much about and that I shouldn't have my voice heard in these elections. And so that's when I really thought that it was important to make this a reality. Other people, adults, namely, as as you know well, after doing this work for several years, they see that number, they see 16 and think, well, these are just kids. They're not mature enough to be voting uh, on issues uh, that are so important. So You've had to to respond to that, I'm sure, many times. What do you say Mm -hmm, to that argument? Yeah, so one of the primary things is that 16 and 17 is already when many students are transitioning into adulthood. Like many 16 and 17-year-olds I know work a job outside of school. They 
like we know how to drive a car. Like voting, I think, should be a part of the process of becoming an adult. Like voting should not be tied to adulthood. That's something that I've worked to stress over the years is that voting as an issue, we need to separate it from the idea of adulthood because right now, as it is at 18, with full enfranchisement, immediately, as soon as you turn 18, there's no lead up. There's no preparation, really. And so by lowering the voting age for local elections first at 16, 17, we can sort of have a lead up for youth into full enfranchisement and better prepare them for a future of engagement. So in addition to that preparation, it also sounds like you, you feel that maturity shouldn't necessarily be tied to a number. Yeah, exactly. I mean, right now, there's no maturity um, requirement for voting, right? Like, as soon as you turn 18, there's no maturity requirement. You don't need to demonstrate any knowledge in order to vote. And so I'm one, I just don't think that that should be a requirement for youth either. You've met some people over the age of 18 you don't consider very mature, it sounds like. <laughs> I mean, it's not for me to judge. And <laughs> That's a very mature thing. response. I, again, it's just not for me to judge. And so I don't think that should be a requirement for people to vote in the issues that directly affect them and make their voice heard. We're certainly seeing reports increasingly of partisan politics in school board races in particular. What kinds of things, you know, as you watch those races and those stories come out, what kinds of things concern you when you see that kind of partisanship? The purpose of school boards is to serve the public. What I hope to do by lowering the voting age to 16 is to refocus school boards back towards students, right? Partisan politics has no place in our school boards and our local elections. And so by refocusing it back onto the people most directly affected, I hope that we can move away from these politics and have school boards, again, focus on how to best uh, best create an environment where youth can learn, can grow. And this could be like more focused curriculums that students actually want. Like You'd be surprised how many students actually want to learn more about things and have their thoughts on what things they want to learn about or certain issues with the school that school boards are just not addressing, but students constantly have complaints about. And while students definitely air these complaints, a lot of the times they're just not heard. And so by by lowering the voting age and, for, uh, and making school boards more responsive to youth, we can help serve youth better and reduce partisan politics. When you're talking to your fellow students, they know this is an issue you're passionate about and that you've been working on. Mm-hmm. What kinds of issues do they say they want tackled a lot of the and taken care of? In my school, we have um, an issue with the heating with the school. It makes it really hard for students to learn an environment where you're freezing and a lot of the times. And so that's an issue that they really want the school to fix. Another issue is with the school's response to a lot of cultural issues that are important to students and how they feel like administration's efforts are not necessarily placed in the, are in the right place to best make an impact on a school's response to perhaps a event, a anti-Semitic event, perhaps, or maybe an effort to um, hurt LGBT, LGBTQ youth in their community. And so these issues youth feel really passionate about around me. You've been focused on local elections for all this time, but can you imagine, mm-hmm. you know, as you've seen the shift slowly, can you imagine a time when the voting age in federal elections drops to 16 as well? It was only 50 years ago that the voting age was dropped from 21 to 18 during the Vietnam War era. And so I'm not too sure. Maybe in another 50 years, we'll see a 16-year-old <laughs> voting age. 
We'll see if we speak again. Yanjay, thank you for this. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. Yanjay Hu is the founder and executive director of Vote 16 New Jersey. We reached him in Trenton, New Jersey. Today, when Maria Kartasheva took the oath of citizenship, a lot was going through her mind, including probably that she'd been there before and that she hoped this time would go better. Last year, the Ottawa woman was about to take her citizenship oath when an officiant pulled her from the ceremony at the last minute. The problem was a Russian conviction against her for misinformation because of two blog posts in which she criticized the Russian army's actions in the Ukrainian city of Bucha. That was disturbing, but it got worse. Last month, she received a letter from Immigration, Refugees, and Citizenship Canada, which suggested her conviction might not just affect her chances of citizenship, but could potentially break Canadian law as well. But after the CBC ran her story, Canada's immigration minister intervened, posting on social media that Ms. Kartasheva would indeed get her citizenship. Before she got that good news, though, she spoke to As It Happens about her situation and what was in that latest letter. It said that the officer thinks that uh, the article that I was sentenced under uh, is the same or similar to the article in Canada. Basically, it has equivalence in Canada, Mm -hmm. and that means that I can't become a Canadian citizen, that I fall under prohibition under the Canadian Citizenship Act. What did you think when you read those words? That I'm done. <laughs> then like, basically, yeah, I'm in danger. Uh, I will probably get deported. Then I won't get my citizenship. I was panicking pretty much. <laughs> panicking, yeah. I can only imagine it must have been emotional. If we if we go back to the the posts in question, tell our listeners what you wrote back in 2022. I wrote that basically how horrified I was with the pictures that I saw from Bucha, honestly, it broke my heart. Um, at first, I refused to believe it. I didn't think it was possible. The more evidence showed up, the more I realized that I have to say something about it. I have to comment on this somehow. Because at the same time, Russian media was trying to persuade people that it's not true. And they had some ridiculous arguments But I know that in this moment, I I understand that people would want to not believe Mm -hmm. these pictures because they they are too horrid. And so I just really wanted to comment on that and tell people that they are horrible, but we need to look at them and we need to understand on what side we want to be. You're now waiting, as we've said, for for an answer from Canadian officials. How are you Mm -hmm. feeling about your chances? I honestly don't know. Uh, I feel a little more optimistic after my uh, member of parliament contacted me and told me that uh, she will try to figure it out and try to talk to uh, Canadian Minister of Immigration and she won't let anyone send me back to Russia. (laughs) So I do feel a little more optimistic, but on the other side, I am still very worried, very anxious. I am tired. <laughs> we had pandemic, we had war, I had uh, been prosecuted unjustly, and now I have to fight Canadian government as well. Like I just don't think I have it in me anymore at this point. 
That was Maria Kartasheva speaking to Neil before she was invited to a citizenship ceremony which took place today. As the Minister of Immigration Mark Miller wrote on X today, Canada's citizenship eligibility rules are designed to catch criminals, not to suppress or punish legitimate political dissent. Ms. Kartasheva will not face deportation and has been invited to become a Canadian citizen. A big chunk of a plane flying off in mid-flight is probably the most glaring problem with the Boeing 737 MAX 9, but it's not the only one. All of the MAX 9s in the United States have been grounded while investigators look into the Alaska Airlines incident. United Airlines is inspecting its planes and found loose bolts on the same part of the aircraft that flew off over the weekend. Today, Boeing held a safety meeting for employees and issued a statement saying it is working with airlines to address its findings and is committed to, quote, the highest safety standards. John Golia is an aviation safety consultant who used to work for the U.S. National Transportation Safety Board. We reached him in Boston. John, this was certainly terrifying for people on board this plane. And as we watch it, it's, it's certainly significant by any stretch. But for you, from your experience, how do you size this up? Well, I, I agree that it was scary to be on the airplane and fortunate that we have no serious injuries or, or worse mm-hmm. from the passengers. But from a mechanical point of view, uh, the airplane, because this was a door, it's different than most other blowouts that we have seen in the past. Mm-hmm. You know, Southwest Airlines had a couple. There's been others. This is surrounded by serious aircraft structure. So I think the structural integrity of the airplane was never really at risk. Mm-hmm. But that's not to say the passengers were not really upset. But on the spectrum of you know, how significant this is for Boeing? Oh, for Boeing. The significance of this to Boeing is, is very significant. You know, I, I read today that their stock price went down 8% or something like that. So that's a financial hit. In the stock market, I'm sure they're going to have all sorts of repercussions out of this. This will probably result in a serious fine from the FAA. And it's just another black eye for Boeing as well. What do you think is going on? Because, you know, we've covered the the deadly cases in the past. Uh, We're talking about loose bolts potentially here, you know, a manual that that needed to be more specific and clearer for, for the crew. What is happening? You know, Boeing is not the same Boeing that I grew up with, put it that way. They have changed since the last almost 10 years, since they bought McDonnell Douglas and brought in a lot of McDonnell Douglas management that had a different philosophy than the Boeing philosophy. A simple way to say it is they've lost touch with their products, especially at the higher levels. And they need to bring back quality in their organization. And if I were Calhoun the chairman of the board and the person that's running uh, uh, Boeing right now, uh, I would have brought in a, a hundred additional inspectors in Seattle, and I don't know how many, at least that many in South Carolina, and put them to work to get the focus towards quality. And you can always pull them out later, but mm-hmm. we got to get the products on firm ground. And we just seem to not be on firm ground. Every time we turn around, every few months, 
there seems to be a new revelation about issues. So far, Boeing has said, quote, we are committed to ensuring every Boeing airplane meets design specifications and the highest safety and quality standards, unquote. What do you think? Written, the by, com- written by, the best, <laughs> by the best public relations people we can hire. For, for passengers, potential passengers, for people listening at home to be able to have faith in those words and the planes potentially, what needs to happen? Well, I, I, I'm going to be flying... Uh, Boeing airplanes a lot in the very near future, most likely a 900 uh, next week. So I don't have a big concern, but that's not to say that we're not going to see additional problems. Boeing needs to get their quality act together. If you were investigating what went wrong with this particular MAX 9, what clues would you be looking at right now? Probably two or three different fronts. I would have already sent uh, some people to Spirit to find out what kind of condition they send this plug bill when they ship the fuselage to Seattle, just so you have that as a baseline. Then I would go and talk to the people who did the work on this airplane. And now that we know that United has five more, I would want to talk to the people who worked on those five airplanes. Maybe they're the same people, maybe they're not. But I would want to talk to everybody who worked on those this airplane and those five airplanes, at the very least, what they found, what work they did, what the instructions that they were following said to do, was there a rush to get it out? There's always rushes, but were they pressured to, to just close it up, get it out? All those focused areas right around the job that's accomplished, and now let's assume that the, that the uh, instructions were not as good mm-hmm. as they could be. I would talk to the people who wrote those instructions and find out what they were thinking when they wrote them. Just from that that circle of what I just mentioned, you would probably get 20 or 30 additional questions that mm-hmm. you would ask different people. At this stage, what you've read and seen and heard so far, what is your, your gut telling you about what might have been the cause? I mean, do you think it comes down to manufacturing, that that's the problem here? Uh, it, it's in the Boeing facility. Because what's come out so far is that this door is opened on the assembly line, and they bring material into the airplane. When you're bringing in bits of pieces, the sidewall, the overhead bins, the ceiling, all the wiring for the lights, all of those bits and pieces, it is very convenient to bring them through this door because it's not used for anything else. I think that's why Boeing employees use this door for egress of the parts that they use inside the cabin. That's all said and done. Somebody's responsible for closing this door and re-securing it. And that's where the failure is. Did they plan on using this door for egress when they designed the manufacturing process? Or was this something that was done by the people on the shop floor who saw it as an easier way to get their bits and pieces inside the cabin. So that takes on a different flavor. Now you've got a deviation from the procedures, and any time you have a deviation from procedures, you run the risk of having problems. How long until we get answers? Well, if you ask the NTSB, they're going to tell you two years. I think that probably in four or six weeks, enough will filter out that we might have a good handle on what it is. 
I mean, we already have a halfway decent handle on it, but it's not all said and done. So it's going to take a little while to get it all out. The government will have it. The NTSB will have it. But whether or not it comes out to the traveling public or people like me, that's another matter. John, thanks for this. You're welcome. John Golia is an aviation safety consultant. He's in Boston. When Chelsea Black and her team put location trackers on silky sharks off the coast of Florida, they were hoping it would give them more insight into the creature's migration habits, since they already knew why they're called silky sharks. And yes, it's because their bodies look silky smooth. Anyway, having addressed uh, the silkiness, they kept researching. And what Ms. Black wasn't expecting was that because of that tagging, she would end up with rare documentation of a dorsal fin wound healing in silky sharks. Yeah, I I like saying silky sharks. You try it. (laughs) See? Anyway, again, this finding about silky sharks was published recently in the Journal of Marine Sciences. And Chelsea Black, who is a marine biologist and PhD candidate at the University of Miami, is the author. We reached her in Asheville, North Carolina. So, Chelsea, you tag all these sharks, a few weeks go by, and then things took a very unexpected turn. What happened? Yeah, so we put out 10 satellite tags on silky sharks in Jupiter. And, you know, this is something that we can watch their movements from a computer. So we set out the 10 tags and I kind of just let them do their thing before I start checking their locations. Um, And I could see that they were moving around in different areas of Florida and then kind of took some time, stopped watching them until I got contacted by a diver and photographer, Josh Schellenberg, Mm -hmm. who saw when he was diving a silky shark with a really oddly shaped dorsal fin. And he knew that I had just tagged several of them a couple weeks before. So he sent me the photo and said, is this one of your sharks? And I said, if that's one of my sharks, it's missing a satellite tag. And each shark is also tagged with a little plastic ID tag that sits under the dorsal fin, which is separate from the satellite tag. And we were able to get a photograph of that tag to confirm the number and see what shark it was and what satellite tag used to be on it. Um, so I, you know, thought, well, that's that. I'm never going to hear from that shark again. <laughs> that What you're saying is that the shark was intact when you tagged it and then something happened to it, right? Before this, yep. before this, yeah. this guy called you. So mm-hmm. what happened? So my best guess is that a fisherman caught the shark because silky sharks are very commonly caught in Florida. Um, And the most recent photographs of the shark, he has about three hooks in his mouth um, Mm. that he's kind of gotten over the year. So we know that he's been encountered several times by fishermen. What are they caught for? So they're usually caught on accident. So the fishermen will be out fishing for grouper or other fish and a shark will, you know, come up and grab the grouper or whatever fish is on the line and end up getting hooked because there's a lot of them in that area. So how much of its fin did it lose? Um, Just over 20% of its fin was cut out, um, which is 
a very large chunk when you think about the size of the fin, and it's one of the most important fins besides the tail that is on the body of the shark. It sounds quite horrific. I've seen I've seen some images from from your research, but as you mentioned, you didn't expect you would ever reconnect with this shark, and that was yeah. a surprise as well. Yeah, so I kind of forgot about him um, until a year later, almost to the date, it was actually 332 days later, the shark showed up back in Jupiter, and they're only in Jupiter, Florida for the summer months. So the reason that we were tagging them is we were trying to figure out where they go the rest of the year because scientists just don't know, um, and they're pretty hard to track. So we were trying to figure out, okay, they come to Jupiter every summer. What are they doing the rest of the year? And do the same sharks come back every year? Or do we see a different population of sharks? So I really didn't expect to ever see him again. Um, And then the summer of 2023, sure enough, that shark returned to Jupiter. And he was actually photographed by two photographers, one being Josh, who saw him the summer before. And then the second was actually the boat captain that we had hired for the original tagging expedition. Mm -hmm. Um, He was out leading a shark dive and saw the shark and sent me some photos um, to see if it was any of the ones that we had tagged. And I knew immediately when I saw the dorsal fin, the way that it looked, that it had to be the one that had the tag cut off. And one of the divers was able to get close enough to that little plastic tag to actually clean it off and take a photo of the number and send it to me. So I was able to confirm that it was, in fact, that shark. And you confirmed, but it was different. Yep. So the fin has changed shape over the past year, um, which you would expect, but it actually, what I would assume would happen is that it would kind of heal in that oddly shape that it was, but it actually not only did it heal, but it closed up that hole and then actually grew additional fin. um, And it grew back 10.7% of new tissue, which is almost more than half of what was cut off the summer before. So it's actually up to almost 90% back to its original size when I first tagged it, which is insane. It's surprise after surprise with this with this particular shark. Mm-hmm. You say it's insane in that initial moment as you're studying those photographs they sent you. I mean, you must have just lost it, really. I can only imagine. I was, yeah, I was really excited that, well, one, we confirmed that, you know, at least some sharks do season in Jupiter. So it came back uh, for whatever reason. And two, I was just so glad that the shark was alive and he's seemingly perfectly healthy. He's not skinny, so he's hunting fine. And he was swimming fine, like he was in the water with divers. And everyone said he was acting no different than any of the sharks with full dorsal fins. So he was just completely unaffected by this whole scenario, which you just don't see very often. This is actually only the second time that this has been recorded in a shark species. So we've never known sharks to be able to regenerate a dorsal fin. And it's only been observed one other time in a whale shark in the Indian Ocean who had the top of his fin cut off by a boat. And over seven years, it completely grew back to 100% um, and had the same shape and everything. So I think over time, we'll see the same with this shark that you know, hopefully this summer in 2024, he comes back to Jupiter and we're able to get photographs and measure it all over again to see how much more progress he's made. You clearly love these creatures, but what has all of this taught you about them? Um, If I've learned anything, it's that sharks are constantly surprising us and we still 
know so little about them. And, you know, they've been on earth for longer than humans. They've, they outdate trees. They've been around for 400 millions of years and we still know so little and we're still making these astonishing discoveries about how adaptable they are. But it makes sense when you think about how long they've been on this planet. Chelsea, thank you. Thank you so much. Marine biologist and shark researcher Chelsea Black in Asheville, North Carolina. it. I cleverly made my way into the locked art gallery. I used my fancy tools to steal several expensive masterpieces. And after stealing, I stole away, knowing I had completed my very own Mission Impossible. What are you doing? I told you I would call you. Yes, I did the art robbery. Why do you sound surprised? I said I would do it, didn't I? Look, my tone, my tone is because I'm a little offended that you apparently don't believe I'm capable of pulling off a, a simple heist with a... Oh, okay, I, I gotta go. Now, the guy who tried to pull off a heist in Scottsdale, Arizona this week did about half of everything right. He managed to sneak into the gallery with a little drill and a glass-breaking tool. He stole seven artworks, including a Picasso and a Warhol, cumulatively worth a quarter of a million dollars U.S., And he parked his car right under the access ladder so he could make a clean getaway. But then there are the things that he did wrong, like uh, parking his car right under the access ladder, which tends to set off alarm bells. Also, he set off actual alarm bells at the alarm company, which called a gallery employee, but he still could have gotten away with it. If he hadn't made or taken a phone call before going down the ladder to his car. When that employee showed up at the gallery, they could hear someone talking on the phone on the floor above, which was suspicious because it was 5.45 a.m., a time when few buy art. So a suspect has been arrested, even though he could have escaped. It would have just been a close call if it hadn't been for that close call. You've been listening to the As It Happens podcast. Our show can be heard Monday to Friday on CBC Radio 1, following the world at 6. You can also listen to the show online at cbc.ca slash AIH or on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. I'm Neil Kirksell. And I'm Chris Howden. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.